Hey everyone, welcome to EMS Connect On Shift, your go-to podcast for everything EMS. Sometimes we're going to educate, sometimes we're going to review EMS articles or books, sometimes we just hang out with badass people and BS, but I'll tell you what, every time we're going to have an absolute blast. I am your host, Sean Pitts. I'm the head of education for EMS Connect. We are a top-tier EMS education organization that offers more education than you'll ever need. We have a website with hundreds of hours of education. We've got online EMS refresher courses, and we even offer on-site courses. Before we jump into this episode, please take a moment to go to whatever app you're listening to this on right now and subscribe to our show, give feedback, and give our show a rating. Every rating you give truly elevates this podcast and makes it easier for others to find us. Please help us spread the word about EMS Connect and the OnShift podcast so everyone can get educated. Uh, Sherry, you want to go ahead and give a quick introduction, but look at this amazingly badass picture. Too bad you're wearing a mask, but it just looks majestic. I can't believe you drummed that up. So (laughs) they got my best side, the mask on. (laughs) So my name is Sherry Whirl, and I am a flight nurse with Life Flight and a background in emergency and critical care um, nursing. And uh, I've worked in the pre-hospital field for quite a few years now. And so I love to share my knowledge and uh, share some of this education, especially today's topic, OB uh, emergencies and field deliveries. Sweet. All right. Well, uh, we have creatively titled this slide, <laughs> Oh Baby, Meconium Happens and Other OB Emergencies in EMS. So uh, I'm going to turn this over. Well, let's do a poll question first, and then we're going to turn it over to you. So this is just kind of a baseline knowledge of where everyone's sitting. So what are the three stages of delivery called? Is it A, dilation stage, expulsion stage, and placental stage? Is it B, flat hilly and mountain stage? C, <laughs> no, heck no, and not stage? Or D, is it A, B, C, and D stage? We're going to launch that up in the poll questions. Mostly because I think we kind of get caught up into the stage one, stage two, stage three. Yeah. So I think it's important that we actually understand the name, uh, names of the stages, especially when it comes to documentation. So I'm going to leave that up for people to uh, vote on just for a second. Most everyone's taking it serious. We do have a few that have already selected. C. C. No, heck no. Absolutely not. I was going to go with... Uh, more of a vulgar option there, but I'm just going to leave it at no, heck no, and absolutely not stage. So uh, most people have voted. So obviously a majority of people did pick the dilation stage, expulsion stage, and placental stage. So with that, Sherry, I'm going to turn this over to you and let's get started. Excellent. So uh, these calls that uh, for labor and delivery and uh, maternal OB emergencies, they definitely are the uh, kind of calls that when we get dispatched to them, we think, oh no, why did I pick up this shift? Or I would rather be anywhere else. Because it is nerve wracking. You do have two patients. You have one patient that you can't see quite yet and one that you're not quite sure what exactly is going on or where where you are in the those stages of delivery. And uh, so they are nerve wracking when we get to them. So that's one reason why today we're just gonna cover everything that you might come across when you get dispatched to that OB emergency. And so we're going to cover the different disease processes that you might encounter and um, different types of major 
possible hemorrhaging um, that could become major, um, and then delivery, how to potentially deliver in the field, what we might call a normal delivery or a breach delivery after that, or complications that come along with that, and then post-delivery emergencies. So you can't forget that once you deliver that baby, you still have additional phases like that third stage, that placental delivery to go through, and there's so much more that could happen with your mama in that in that um, stage. So. Sweet, absolutely. Starting off, we have the changes that occur with our pregnant patients. And so that is one thing that uh, is often overlooked that uh, when you have your pregnant patient that you come across, their airway and respiratory um, status might be a little different than baseline than normal. They have a slightly elevated respiratory rate, um, up to 29 breaths a minute can sometimes be normal for our pregnant mamas. So you definitely have to read the room when you come in and assess your airway and breathing. And so hormonal changes cause capillary engorgement and that could cause edema and upper airway swelling um, quite rapidly. So if there's any concern or potential for loss of the airway, you need to intervene quickly and know that there might be some additional swelling that goes on in that airway. And with that capillary engorgement, um, some bleeding that might occur as you try to intubate. And so just be very mindful that um, intubation fairly early on, if you have a situation where you need to secure that airway and know that it, uh, there will be changes from your baseline patient status. And so um, again, that increased respiratory rate and that ventilation um, is gonna be baseline elevated because that mom is pumping that oxygenated blood around and getting it to the placenta and then getting it to the baby. And so a little bit elevated can be normal. So be mindful when you're just reading the room and assessing your mother. Um, decreased lung capacity um, and poor reserve because that diaphragm is elevated, especially after 20 weeks, uh, that tummy's expanded, the fetal growth and development can sometimes push that diaphragm up, up to four centimeters um, and remove that reserve capacity in our lung volume. And so you'll be aware that there's not much residual um, capacity if mom is um, exhausted and has some fatigue with a respiratory status. And so, um, and then chest tube placement is often suggested, maybe one intercostal space higher if you need to put in a chest tube, just be mindful of that fetal lay and, and the uterine um, fundal height. And so be mindful when you're um, doing any traumatic interventions. Is and there any any change with just needle decompression or is that chest tube only? Chest tube only, okay. especially on that lateral wall. Perfect. And so, yeah, the um, needle decompression, you should be just fine up in that anterior upper chest area. And so no changes there. Um, and then pulmonary edema is uh, frequently um, something that you be mindful of. So be very judicial when you're administering fluids, don't overload it if possible. If you need some volume resuscitation, if you have blood available or able to give um, blood volume rather than excess crystalloids, think about that um, so mom doesn't get pulmonary edema secondary to that volume that you might give in a traumatic situation. But so things to be uh, mindful of with the airway and respiratory status. Um, what did I do? Uh, <laughs> Perfect. Um, so our next poll question here is uh, just kind of as we kind of talk about that fluid change, yeah. right? So by the third trimester, plasma volume increases by what to what? So we got 10 to 15 percent, 20 to 30 percent, 30 to 50 percent, or over 50 percent. So again, um, maybe you're an EMT, you're not familiar with this part of the skill, but uh, as an advanced EMT or paramedic for sure, this is important to kind of have an idea, especially when we're dealing with those shock and trauma patients. 
uh, and fluid uh, resuscitation patients. So I'll let this go just for another five or 10 seconds. Answers are kind of all over the board. It's a tough one because you don't realize what mom has to do to, yeah. to make sure that babe has enough circulating volume. And About two more seconds. Mostly because you had a lot of really good responses all over the place. <laughs> Maybe we stumped people a little bit on this one. I'm That's okay. It is tough. It is tough. All right. So a majority of our people, uh, we got, went to 30 to 50%. Uh, we do have a little bit that say 20 to 30%. percent we got a small that said over 50%. And then uh, no one picked the 10 to 15. So uh, Sherry, oops, uh, what's the answer? Strong work. It's 30 to 50%. Nice work. So yeah, so our hemodynamic state uh, in our pregnant patients is quite... Um, the volume is definitely increased just even from those numbers because 30 to 50 percent that's that's a lot when you think about it in your brain and so what does that mean for our patient that all, that means that they can lose quite a bit of volume before you even recognize that they're in a shocky state and so uh, be very, very mindful if you're seeing any um, vaginal blood loss any hemorrhaging um, that uh, they could be losing quite a bit before it's recognized in the mom. Usually in our pregnant patients, when there is um, a, a phase going into a shocky state, you recognize it with the fetus first. Um, you can, if you have a way to check fetal heart tones, they're either going to become hyper um, tachycardic or bradycardic. Um, so you'll see those sways with the fetus because the catecholamine uh, reaction that the mom has in a traumatic situation is going to shunt everything away from the baby and try to keep mom alive. And so baby will react usually first before you even see it with mom. But just with that, 35% of volume loss can uh, occur before we actually see it with the vital signs. And um, and with that excess fluid volume that circulates, there's also related to the hormones, increased fibrogen and clotting factors that occur. And so pregnant patients are 10 times more likely than our average patients to have a clotting issue, like getting blood clots in their legs and having thromboembolytic uh, issues. And so, and what happens with that is it's um, when you have an issue where you have a traumatic injury and your body's trying to create clots, it's going to use up those clotting factors quite rapidly and it's going to try to form those clots and trying to remember that once you use up the allotted amount of clotting factors your body has, you don't have any more left. And so you've got all of that volume that's circulating through with no ability to clot. And that's when you go into DIC, the disseminated intervascular coagulation issues, where those are the stories you hear where people bleed out everywhere. They just, they have no ability to clot. That's a risk you're looking at with your pregnant patients is that they can get to that phase through a traumatic injury, they can rapidly deteriorate and get to a point where they can't clot. And so be super mindful of any hemorrhaging, vaginal bleeding, anything along those lines, knowing that they might reach a state where they can't um, stop the bleeding on their own. Well, then we we then obviously then start IVs and running you know, large volumes and trauma patients, which yes. is just contributing to that yes. inability to clot and clot. so on. Exactly, because that dilution of of that volume can can occur. And so if you can get blood to the patient immediately and and um, stopping the bleeding, um, if there's a an external hemorrhage like from extremity tourniqueting, um, things along those lines, you definitely need to be mindful of and. 
and that cardiac issues where um, that increased O2 demand is um, from all that blood volume circulating around, the heart rate goes up, the stroke volume is increased, that mom has big effective pumps that get that blood volume that's going through her body to get blood circulating to that placenta that in turn sends that blood into the baby to, to keep that fetus oxygenated and, and circulating blood volume. And so, and hormone response also can cause vasodilation. And so that just means that your mom, the mom, the patient that you have has a decreased systemic vascular resistance. And so um, she vasodilates and that is a that causes difficulty constricting and, and clamping down. And so because of that decreased resistance, she might become hypotensive too. And so um, in some of our patients, um, they might present warm and dry and sometimes um, not quite in the normal shock state that we're used to and because they're unable to clamp down as much. And so there might be a different presentation to your patient, um, but being mindful of reading the room, looking at all injuries, what's going on, um, and uh, ensuring that you stop the bleed. That's the big one too. So, but yeah, so physiological changes in our pregnant patients affect our care. So gastric, this is another big one too, just purely for the fact that you have to remember that all that pressure in her tummy is pushing upwards, which um, can cause regurgitation and vomiting emesis. And instantly, anytime um, that comes to my mind, I think airway is going to go south real quick, especially if she's unable to maintain her own airway. So remember all that pressure that's got in her tummy that can, after 20 weeks especially, will push up and, and cause some complications to that. So if you're thinking airway, just remember that you might have a lot of MSS and um, suction, have suction handy too. And so um, this is also one of your reasons why your mom has acid reflux and heartburn so often too, is because of that relaxed um, sphincter too, that causes acid to come up. And then what we all talk about, that supine hypotension syndrome. So that's why we try to lay our mama on her side when uh, we present to the patient and have to lay them on our stretcher because with all that pressure and that weight from baby and the uterus on the vena cava, um, you can cause some good hypotension going on. And so you need to be aware that if it's something you didn't think about when you put mom on the stretcher and then all of a sudden you're taking a blood pressure and she's 90 over 62 and uh, going down a little south with that blood pressure and you think, oh wait, I should probably displace that uterus and lie, lie her to the side a little bit. and Laying her at whichever side will work as long as she's just not flat on her back. I, I have to lay my mom on their right side when they're in my uh, helicopter because I wouldn't be able to see her face otherwise. And so just making it work for you and then even making it work when you're doing CPR, because if you're trying to do compressions on your patient and that vena cava is occluded and you're just ineffectively not moving blood around the body, uh, best to deplace that uterus and, and get some good effective compressions going on. You can manually have somebody just push on the belly and manually displace it. And that works just as well too. So if mom needs to lay flat while you're doing CPR and just having somebody push on the tummy, that'll work too. So. I think that's the two most common times we probably forget about it, right? Is yes. CPR yep. and then when we backboard and C-spine Yeah. because we think to ourselves, they have to be supine. Right. Well, no, we can take that backboard. We can We can backboard them but then take the whole backboard and, and tilt 10, it. 15 degrees exactly. to get, you know, displace that. Yep, because they're still in cervical spine precautions. You're just tilting everything just so the weight is not flat on mom, that it's tilted off just a little bit to the side. And again, either side works, whatever rig you, you transport in, 
making it work, just displacing. I think that's good because in the textbook, if you're looking at NREMT, they're telling you it's got to be on the left side. side, Yeah. yeah. And that was, I mean, the mom would just be in my vehicle, would have her facing a wall. Yeah. (laughs) So you're just like, you doing okay over there? And so, no, it just, it's going to have, it's, especially with anything we talk about with our pregnant patients, you're going to have to make it work for your transport vehicle. It's, you've got to do what you've got to do. And so just getting them from A to B safely and being able to assess your patient. So just mindful of these changes in your patient and then um, uh, can help with care too. So now the emergencies that we encounter in pregnancy, uh, these next three disease processes that I'll talk about they're not necessarily something that you're going to get dispatched to a OB emergency or an imminent delivery, and you're going to show up. And this isn't something that you're going to diagnose. Like you're not going to be able to come across your patient and go, oh, I bet she has help syndrome. No, it's usually what happens is, is you show up to these patients home and a family member or the mom can tell you, they told me I had help syndrome. So the reason why I want to emphasize, especially these next few disease processes is so when you come across the patient and the family says, oh, we were just told this, you'll be able to have it click in your mind. Okay, I need to be aware of this because she knows she has HELP syndrome. For example, she's got hemolysis. So those blood cells are being destroyed quickly and rapidly. And so usually a little hemolytic anemia going on. Her liver function is not great at all because she's got elevated enzymes and low platelets. All of that leads up to the fact that she probably has poor um, clotting ability. Her filter organs are in failure or potential for failure. Um, there's things that you correlate and piece together with this HELP syndrome process. HELP syndrome is, is kind of debated if it's a part of preeclampsia or if it's just associated with preeclampsia, but um, most of us have heard the phrase preeclampsia. And so you're aware that with this association, there could also be some high blood pressure. And that seems to be the the kicker that you need to be superbly aware of is how high mom's blood pressure is. And so what you may observe, bleeding because she's got that hemolysis and low platelets, um, she may have severe abdominal pain, um, swelling throughout her body, um, nausea, vomiting. And so you manage these symptoms. You take care of these symptoms, antiemetics. You make sure to stop any bleeding that might be going on, any vaginal bleeding. Again, maybe limiting the fluid administration because you don't want her to go into pulmonary edema. And then be super mindful of that blood pressure, the hypertensive issues that might be going on because with extreme hypertension can lead to um, more severe outcome for mom and um, potential for increased fetal demise. And so we just need to be mindful of that. So help syndrome. On the on the antiemetic side, I mean, Zofran is the first drug that comes to mind. Yeah. I I thought there was some sort of class action lawsuit, right? Where they were like you weren't supposed to be given Zofran to pregnant moms. So is that the is that the antiemetic of choice? Is there one that you prefer? Is that still, I still the still go with Zofran? Yeah, that's still the one that is the the key go to for moms and um, the mothers that I treat. And um, you know, you could um, so many other antiemetics that we might possibly give also have um, the potential for. Um, kind of a decreased respiratory status or they kind of slow baby and mom down a little bit because, um, you know, even Ativan can be used as an anti-emetic for in some cases. And um, anytime you give anything um, that might decrease um, respiratory drive, you just be mindful of. And the key is, is whatever works for mom, if you get down to that 
you know, you've tried the phases of everything and, and ufology protocol and you get down to a little bit higher, heavier duty anti-emetic, you just simply tell the hospital, I gave this. And so gotcha. the reason why you might see something is because I might have given it a medication that causes maybe a decreased respiratory drive, especially if delivery is imminent. Um, we need to be mindful of what we give because of how it might affect the fetus too. But so HELP syndrome related and associated with, ah, yeah, good. we're going to jump in Perfect. just because yeah, we, we love a couple of these. Yes. Uh, so another, just kind of check your knowledge. This one probably, um, I took this from like an NREMT style question because yeah. as newer EMTs, there's a lot of like, what's the difference between placental abruption and placenta previa, yep. right? So bleeding during placenta previa is often blank. Is it painful, painless, uncontrollable, or spurting? We're going to see, test everyone's knowledge here. Um, again, if you're uh, joining us and you're taking the NREMT, this is probably going to be a test question. Uh, so <laughs> understanding the difference between painful bleeding and painless bleeding is going to be yep. uh, a definite key factor in that question. So not that I'm picking on one specific person <laughs> who's taking the NREMT tomorrow at 1030, but see if, he catches, <laughs> see if he's listening. So. Oh, I love it. <laughs> All right, about two more seconds. Uh, most people are going the right direction. Got a couple people that maybe got them confused or what, but it is easy to do. Yeah. So what we have here is we have 54% of the people have painless bleeding, 24% uh, painful bleeding, 20% uncontrolled bleeding, and then 2% at spurting bleeding. So do you agree with the 54% of our people? Very good. Yep. Awesome. Very good. And we'll go over more in depth in just a little bit too, and we'll explain why it is painless um, with placenta previa. So we'll get it clarified for you. Perfect. So preeclampsia. So you've got the HELP syndrome, which is often related or associated um, in the same category with the preeclampsia. And so this is often diagnosed with excessive proteins in the urine and definitely hypertension. And so uh, the preeclampsia is linked to that hypertension, which is defined in our pregnant patients as greater than 140 over 90. Uh, so the key with your preeclamptic patients, so you get dispatched to a home and uh, they say, so I have preeclampsia, you know that you're dealing with somebody that's potentially going to be hypertensive or either attempting to take medications, labetalol, um, hydralazine, things along those lines that are helping with the blood pressure. And uh, so you're being super mindful of where their status is hypertension wise. And, um, and concurrent with that, are, do they have a headache? Do they have confusion, blurry vision, um, abdominal pain again because of the liver and the kidney um, damage that's going on, those injuries that are going on are those uh, filter organs and nausea and vomiting. And so uh, similar to the HELP um, protocols where you're, you're being mindful of that blood pressure and the symptoms that they're having, antiemetics and monitoring your fluid, and definitely start gearing towards hypertensive protocols. We need to nip it in the bud um, and reduce the, any risk with having excessive hypertension. And this is where you also correlate too. You've got a mama that is 10 times more likely to produce a blood clot, who's super hypertensive. Um, what goes hand in hand with that? Those Now those clots can circulate through the body. Um, she can have a stroke. 
And so do neuro assessments and check for blurry vision. You want to be super mindful and be able to call in report and say, okay, our neuro status is altered and, um, and blood pressure is elevated. And so um, you can chalk it up to your, your pregnant patients that are usually greater than 20 weeks pregnant um, with hypertensions pretty much you can lock in the concept that she probably has a preeclamptic state, even if they don't quite tell you when you're at their home or, or doing the initial assessments. Um, but you also want to be mindful of what's associated with these preeclamptic patients. And so possible strokes um, and neuro issues as well. And so um, administering your hypertensive protocol medications, especially for your OB patients, that hydralazine, that labetalol protocols. Um, and magnesium is, is not necessarily a blood pressure medication. It doesn't fit in that category, but the side effects that it does have um, being able to block the calcium channels and cause vasodilation, um, it does have that secondary effect of also decreasing the blood pressure a bit. But magnesium is excellent for seizure prophylactics. And so that's usually why it is initiated with preeclampsic patients is to deter any seizure potential. And it is also a fantastic neuroprotectant drug for the fetus. So if mom goes into a state where she's superbly preeclamptic and potentially near the ability to deliver near the, the weak range where greater than 32 weeks, 34 weeks, um, fetus is healthy and viable, that they'll probably potentially plan on delivery and being able to have that neuroprotectant against cerebral palsy and um, helping baby along those lines, uh, magnesium is the drug of choice for that. So, so it's given um, in a lot of pre-hospital protocols um, or a lot of interfacility protocols, just as that seizure prophylactic. But again, the side effect of it is also being able to reduce the blood pressure too. Um, and when you administer your magnesium, know your side effects. So it um, inhibits the calcium channel um, picking up. And so that causes muscle relaxant. And what happens when your muscles relax, your respiratory drive is decreased and you have no muscle tone and you stop breathing. And so you'll need to uh, be super mindful as you're administering these medications to know their side effects and also their reversal agents. So cal calcium gluconate is usually one gram, two grams to reverse that magnesium side effect and get mom being able to pick up some calcium again. Um, and then monitor your airway and breathing. If mom's having trouble breathing, no, you probably did it with a magnesium, not a bad thing, but because you're, you're, you're doing your thing, but bagger help her breathe while you're giving calcium to get it to reverse. So just be super mindful of that. But, and then just follow your protocols and your, um, your agency uh, guidelines for your hypertensive medications. So, and I've noticed on, under the short of breath side of what we may observe, you've had pulmonary edema a couple times. Is CPAP indicated to correct that pulmonary edema? And that could surely help. Absolutely. Being able to provide that little bit of pressure. If mom is feeling short of breath and being being able to assist that way, any type of, of um, pressure with that respiratory is, it would definitely help if she's having some trouble. So being able to stop a pathway where um, it gets worse um, and providing that CPAP, that would be wonderful. So not bad at all. And most all of this, the, the HELP syndrome and the preeclampsia concept is because we want to avoid eclampsia. <laughs> and that truly just means 
what I said on there, what we will observe, your mama's having seizures. And so uh, eclampsia just means purely that she's in a seizure state. And so you're going to come on scene and they're going to um, say that uh, she's 25 weeks pregnant and she's uh, having a seizure and and you go right for the airway management and circulation and um, ensuring that mom is um, not needing to be intubated at this time and um, you're managing a seizure patient but in a little different fashion than you would necessarily with your uh, chronic um, seizure patients, your epileptic patients. Um, usually any mom greater than 20 weeks that's having a seizure, we're going to, even if she's had a several seizures in the past, if she's hypertensive and having a seizure, we usually just chalk it up to an eclamptic state and start off with magnesium as your first drug of choice. Um, and so you start off with a bolus and then you can usually initiate an infusion. Um, and if you already have an infusion going, you can increase the infusion, usually one to two grams um, as well. And so just following your protocol Protocol, but magnesium will be the first line of choice. And that's purely because, again, that neuroprotectant for the baby, um, the magnesium is usually quite effective for stopping the seizures. And that goes down the pathway of planning ahead for your patient because once she's in an eclamptic state and she has these severe issues, the only way to stop this disease process is to deliver the baby. So if we administer a boat ton of benzos, uh, we may cause respiratory depression for the fetus. And so planning ahead down the line and starting off with um, your magnesium and evaluating, assessing, being able to repeat your magnesium um, and seeing if it has any effect, if it's um, not altering mom's respiratory drive, if, um, if it's helping the seizure or not. And then if it's not stopping the seizure, then you start down that benzo line and know that when you arrive to the hospital, and especially if mom is in a deliverable state where she can have a C-section and have baby, um, you tell the facility, I administered two grams, you know, two milligrams of Ativan or four milligrams. Um, so they are mindful that when baby comes out, there needs to be potentially an additional respiratory assistance for when they delivered the baby. And that's purely that pathway. But bottom line, you need to do what you need to do for mom and, and stop the seizure because during the seizure activity, the fetus is not being provided for. All oxygen, all life-sustaining efforts that mom's providing now go to mom. And fetus is and will be in distress. And so and if you're capable of fetal monitoring, at least grabbing heart tones, if somebody can stick somebody on the tummy and find them, um, just so you have some awareness of, of how elevated the baby's heart rate is, um, it's great to provide that report when you show up. But basically, patient A, which is mama, needs to be managed and taken care of. And so, on, so the, on the BLS side, this is yeah. great for the ALS side. Is there any different in the treating the seizure of eclampsia versus a regular seizure? I mean, you're saying the seizure is not going to stop, right? For the most so part, yeah. That's yep. the so now we're like, it's almost like a status seizure for right. a BLS provider. Is Correct. there any kind of treatment differences with nope. treating the seizure? So Yep. If you arrive on scene and your mom is seizing, then you need to make sure that she's not vomiting, the airway is clear, that if she needs assistance bagging, um, you put that non-rebreather on, that you're uh, ensuring that she's fairly stable and that if you can load and go and if it's safe to do so where a mom won't get injured, you won't get injured, then um, just know that your report 
will be different when you're calling into the hospital because you're not just calling in for the seizure patient. You also need a labor and delivery team. You need the OBGYN, um, things along those lines. So the hospital will need to be additionally prepared when you call and report. But that's your seizure patient and you monitor your airway and breathing. That's you just. And I think that's important because yes. with seizure patients, I feel like as BLS, we tend to wait, right? We know the seizure is likely going to end in two to five minutes. Right. But if it's the eclampsia, we need to be able to recognize this is it, it's a load and go. Yeah, it's the a little bit not going to end. Yeah, there's the potential for that seizure to be status and to maintain. And so um, it's definitely a more critical phase, especially time lost in the field means fetal demise. Right. So you've got a little patient in there that you can't see that you can't monitor, that you don't know where you're standing um, for stability and viability. And um, and so that little patient in there needs you. So if you're able to go and safely do so and safely so with mom, then that's, that's definitely the tactic there. So our three disease processes basically all lead up to, the, the first two disease processes all lead up to this concept of the end result is you don't want a seizure to happen. And that's the biggest potential for these patients, the hypertensive seizure state and the potential for neurological injury and risk with that clotting, clotting issue as well. So, um, yeah. Placental emergencies, kind of what we talked about. Um, being able to review that placenta previa. So this is where we talked about that painless bleeding. Um, and so let's, a lot of it, this is so foreign to a lot of people, the whole idea of uterus, placenta, um, it's baby. <laughs> a lot of it is just something you think, no, thank you. And, and so it's, it's a, it's fairly basic and simple. And so I just wanted to lay it out there so we can have it organized in our mind uh, that the placenta is just this, little jellyfish like shape that that's where the nutrients come from from mom so it attaches to the side of the uterus and blood vessels heavily vascular blood vessels are attached to that little jellyfish placenta and all of that blood volume circulates and it goes in through the umbilical cord and that's where baby gets all that blood circulating around and it picks up that oxygenated blood and it transfers through the system and then back out through the placenta and it just that's how it cycles through so there's no lungs that are breathing in and out it's not a little guppy fish in there it's um it's circulating through the placenta through the umbilical cord and it's getting all the nutrients it needs to that little umbilical cord um and so even during delivery that little peanut in there is getting all the nutrients it needs through that umbilical cord. And that's one reason why we'll talk about how important it is to be mindful of where your umbilical cord is at, um, any compression on that umbilical cord, when to cut the umbilical cord. We'll discuss that later on because that's still nutrients that the baby's getting. So throughout delivery, that kiddo is not suffocating. It's not um, having any complications because mom is still doing her job through the placenta, through the umbilical cord. So the placenta previa is when the placenta attaches to the side of the uterus, it uh, can attach fairly low in the uterine lining. And so uh, that just means that it's not up as high as it normally could be. Um, it's down fairly low. And so it also can partially cover the cervical opening. And this just means that the potential for a vaginal delivery is 
none. You just can't do anything vaginally. So these moms often are aware of the placenta previa. They know it's been diagnosed with an ultrasound. And so um, a lot of times when you are at pre-hospital in the field and mom's having abdominal pain, it feels like contractions. And she says, I have um, like a complete placenta previa. And you think, Oh, so we're not going to do anything vaginally in the field. This is just so when mom is able to tell this to you, then you're aware that uh, it'll be a C-section and that you'll need to get to the hospital. Um, and so because that cervical opening is clo- is completely sealed. Now, through through pregnancy, though, there's no complications, right? No. For the most part, like everything goes great. It's just yeah. once delivery, once we start stage one. Correct. Now we start having some complications. complications. Exactly. And usually mama is aware and a C-section is is pre-planned. And so that's when you get that painless bleeding because every once in a while, it's a very vascular um, tissue that that placenta is. And so if you get a little bit of um, that low lying, that partial um, previa, that some vessels can can bleed a little bit and they're not um, completely sealed through the placenta and you get that uh, little scant amount of, of painless vaginal bleeding. And so um, usually it's um, very common and it's just something that the mom is mindful of and that she's aware of it. And so um, when you get a um, heavy bleeding or there's been a tear of the placenta, you need to be superbly mindful that um, maybe that hemorrhaging is uh, becoming too extreme. So just just being mindful of how much bleeding is occurring and um, and what kind of complications will occur during delivery. And that's also why, uh, as not that we are excited about this, but when you have a pregnant patient and you go to scene and you've checked her airway and her breathing, you need to do a vaginal check. Are there any presenting parts? Is there anything down there that you need to be eminently aware of? So, yep, you're going to get cozy and very friendly with your patient because she, you have two patients and you need to check on that second patient as well. And so um, being being aware of what's going on on all aspects of your pregnant patient is really important. So, so the previa moms are usually aware of and, um, and there's some painless painless breathing going on with the way that placenta has um, implanted. So not not too scary of a thing, but it is the um, placenta abruption that we need to be um, highly aware of with complications and vaginal hemorrhaging. And so uh, you can have a partial abruption. So maybe mom had um, an injury or an incident and uh, she has a partial abruption and and she's aware of it uh they've done ultrasounds and um like last week she had a trauma and so they're telling her that you know okay you have partial abruption your part of your placenta is, is torn away but baby is still not distressed still doing good um usually it's it's um reduce activity, being super aware of any um, complications that might come, which is what we don't want to have happen is that complete separation from the placenta, um, from of the placenta from the uterus. And so that's a very, very painful. If you think about it, you're ripping an organ off of, of another body part. And so that vascular tissue is ripped away from the um, uterine lining. So what does that mean for baby? Sorry to jump in and interrupt, but all successful podcasts have advertisements. This podcast wouldn't exist without EMS Connect, an online self-paced CE platform for all levels of EMS providers and firefighters. Our site houses over 140 hours of nationally accredited content for all levels of EMS, 
Access to our site is only $7.50 a month. There are no join fees, cancellation fees, and definitely no bullshit. We also host monthly live sessions where you have the option to interact with our talented and engaging instructors. Just for listening, you will be automatically entered to win a $50 Amazon gift card, which will be drawn at the conclusion of each of our live sessions. All of our courses we offer can be easily imported to your NREMT profile with a few simple clicks. This greatly simplifies your recertification process. All of this can be yours for only $7.50 per month. In this economy, we're spending more than that on our daily coffees. But wait, there's more. Our site also offers EMT, advanced EMT, and paramedic level NREMT refresher courses that are 100% online and self-paced. For all of your training officers out there, we make your job super easy with our administrative tools such as uploading agency courses, skills tracking, participation reports, and so much more. To get a no-catch peek at the administrative tools and capabilities of EMS Connect, contact us at info at emsconnect.org. Again, info at emsconnect.org. All right, enough of the advertisements. Let's get back to this great episode. No more nutrients going through and passing through. And so uh, you have a very, very hard, solid abdomen um, and uh, very painful. And this is the takeaway part with the abruption is that you get called to a um, imminent delivery in the field and you show up and there's mom and she's in distress and she's saying, uh, I've got really bad abdominal pain and lots of pressure and, um, and her tummy feels hard like it does during a contraction. So if you haven't ever felt a contraction before, it's during the moment of contraction when the uterine tightens, the tummy is superbly tight. And so, um, so it just feels very, very tight abdomen wall. And so you get to this mom and you think, oh, she's having a contraction because her tummy's hard and she's having severe abdominal pain. That looks an awful lot like labor, doesn't it? So your brain thinks, okay, mom's going to deliver. She's in labor. Um, being able to do a vaginal assessment, checking to see if there's any blood loss, um, if the contraction ever eases up, is it something that stays, her tummy stays very, very hard and the pain never resolves? Um, and you can, uh, again, read that room and, and link um, con different concepts of, how do we have a recent um, traumatic injury? Was there a recent fall? Start getting a history on your patient to see maybe we do have a placental abruption and, um, and assess for any hemorrhaging that is occurring externally. And um, if mom is wearing a pad or has a, a um, uh, pad lining in her underwear. Um, if that is soaked, if just a normal size pad is soaked, usually that is considered a hundred mils of blood of fluid. And so, uh, just an, an average size pad, if, if that appears to be that size, then, um, that's about a hundred mils of, of blood that she's losing. And so just mentally calculate, okay. And that's a bit of blood that she could be losing. If that placenta has slid down and covered and blocked the cervix, um, blood is not able to escape. But then you start palpating her abdomen. So if the blood can't get out, 
it's pulling in her uterus, that just means her abdomen will get more distended and, and grow in size too. So you can palpate her abdomen and see, are we growing in size? Is it feeling firmer all the way around? Um, and be aware then that you probably have an abruption going on. And this is a um, distressed fetus that you've got going on. This is definitely something where you'll need to um, make um, direct contact with uh, ED and get OB um, involved and um, there'll be immediate surgical intervention and OB involvement when you get to the, the facility. So, And you're talking about <clears throat> some really good assessment techniques, right? Palpating the abdomen, uh, checking for vaginal bleeding. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to reiterate that we're talking to the BLS provider. Yes. Right? Yes. This assessment of a vaginal assessment is a BLS skill. Yes. Uh, palpating the abdomen for contractions yep. versus like bundle height, things like that. Yes. That's a BLS skill. And yes. when I when I was working on the ambulance, most of our paramedics were like, delivering a baby is a hundred percent a BLS skill. Absolutely. Right. Because people can do this at home. Yes. Right. But I think it's important to remember that all these assessment techniques you're talking about. Yeah, the medications maybe the BLS provider can't give. Right. But all these assessment techniques of checking for vaginal bleeding, yes. that's on the BLS person. Absolutely. Like those are all things we're capable of doing. Yes. And so everything that I'm discussing is BLS. Um, you need to have that mindset that this is, don't ever think this is out of your scope of practice. Perhaps administering the drugs um, is something that's not in your protocol, but this this is something that you are saving a life by recognizing this. Be that person that yeah, can, huge. that is huge. You have the difference of going, oh, I think mom's in labor. Let's get mom comfortable to, to actually recognize and have that little bit of hair on your arms or on the back of your neck go up and go, no, this mom has the potential of going into shock. Baby has the potential of dying. You have two patients that could die if you don't recognize this. And so having that wherewithal and that mindset to know that you have the power to intervene and save lives is that's your power. This is what you do. And so this is why you do your job and recognizing this. Touch that patient. Touch that stomach. So don't be afraid. All right, so Boy. now we're going to start talking about some, like, okay, so things are starting to change, right? We're not talking about <laughs> delivery, uh, but just kind of a, a check in on some terms. So a breech delivery means is it a buttocks, legs, or feet first? Uh, B any part other than the head? C arms first? Or D both legs only? So we're going to see if we remember some of our terminology here. Give everyone a chance because this one i mean i'm not gonna lie this one i feel like can throw people off right yes. yep. you get kind of you hear about limb presentation you hear about a breach presentation or you hear a cephalic presentation so making sure again more probably on the documentation side than the actual you're you're not going to walk in and people aren't going to say i'm having a cephalic delivery right, right. but when it comes <laughs> to documentation or um, passing off to that higher level of care uh, this stuff can be important so uh, this one people went through pretty quick. So 62% of people, buttocks, legs, or feet first. We got 33% that says any part other than the head. And we got a couple that say both legs only. So what is the definition of breach, Sherry? Good, good question. It is A, buttocks, legs, or feet first. And we'll definitely go over this. And I've got a few images that you can put it in your, your mind and, and get that visual, which I'm a big visual person. I love to see the images and, and see. And so I'll definitely go over that. Um, 
one more little emergency in pregnancy, which we do not want to see, um, which is the one time we are really, really sad that you picked up this call because it's just going to be a rough go and you're just going to have to move fast as this uterine rupture. So you get toned out, you're on an imminent delivery and everything's looking great. And even mom is, is like, okay, I feel like I need to push and, and a contraction occurs and her uterus tightens and all of a sudden, bleh, the, this, the uterine lining just tears and the fetus, these are things that you can't see, but keep that visual in your mind where the, the babe and all of the, the tissue, the, the products of conception come out of the uterus and just into the mom's abdomen because there's no more containment in the uterus. Usually what happens is, is if she's had a C-section, which is why they, um, their doctors are often leery of doing a vaginal delivery post C-section is because there's a weak area in the uterine lining. It is uh, where there's been a previous cut or um, a tear in that from the C-section. And so that area is just weakened naturally. So during um, sequential deliveries or, or deliveries for, via vaginally, when that con uterus is contracting, that area, that weakened area can tear and then there's no longer that uterus that remains strong and, and can contract and all of that. Um, opens up into mom's abdomen. And so usually what you see there is what went from a, a great vaginal delivery. You see the presenting part, it's the head, everything feels good. You're going to rock this and deliver a baby in the field. And you see the head coming out and all of a sudden, bloop, the head goes back inside mama and the tummy goes uneven. And so usually there's um, still a, a round form on one side and then a complete uh, flat part on the other side where the, all that tissue has gone out into the abdomen. And so there's um, no more containment and no more uterine lining or uterine contraction going on. Um, and so it is that is a omaconium. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's right at PG, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the only thing you can do is go. You've got to go. This is a baby that now has minutes. It is, there is no longer any um, um, fetal protection going on. It's no longer in the uterus. It is, um, it is definitely a distressful situation for mother and for baby. And so being mindful of um, if mom said, oh, I had a C-section two years ago, somewhere tuck it in the back of your head while you're, while you're delivering this baby vaginally, just think there is the potential for, and I'm going to be superbly mindful of how mom's doing, um, how good her contractions are, how, um, if the uterus, um, the tummy becomes asymmetrical, things along those lines, just be mindful that this is a thing. <laughs> Another one I think is important to, to point out, and you have it up here, is with abdominal trauma, right? Seat belts during yes. your motor vehicle collisions, yes. steering wheel during your motor vehicle collisions. I know other educations <clears throat> that I've taken talk about, um, you know, intimate partner violence or some sort of physical, yes. you know, blow to the abdomen. That's the other time this can occur Correct. besides just on the medical side is the traumatic side as well. Correct. Exactly. So definitely read the room. If you have a mom that has the, the, car accident she has a seatbelt across her stomach and and then all of a sudden you get her on your stretcher and she feels like she needs to push or that she's having a contraction or um a severe abdominal pain and you look down and you realize oh there's more going on than just what the eye sees she's actually got some um uterine damage some trauma to the uterus and so this can happen the rupture can happen so yes mindful of traumas and and yeah interpersonal violence absolutely so definitely reading the room um yeah so being able to assess your patient that's key 
So we've got our placental emergencies, the emergencies that could happen in pregnancy. Yeah, just a couple oh. more, you know, throw some pull questions in here. Which stage of delivery typically takes the longest? Dilation stage, expulsion stage, placental stage, or after birth? Just kind of gearing people's brains up to start talking about all the, the field delivery style stuff. Didn't get anybody, we're not trapping anybody on this one. Everyone seems to be going with the right answer. So, oh, there we go. We got someone, maybe he's got the wrong answer. <laughs> First couple of people jumped on real quick and they were, they were spot on. We got some people picking other ones. I know this is a tough one because it could be um, a first time mom kind of thing. Yeah. It could be. Uh, I think the key word there is typically, right? You look at that and just say, okay, so is this baby one or. Right. Yeah. Baby not one. Yeah. Is baby walking out and smoking yeah. a cigar and drinking a Bloody Mary because <laughs> it's number four. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. So this one, we got 85% of people got the uh, dilation stage. We got uh, 9% expulsion, 7% placental. No one went with afterbirth. Uh, so uh, yeah. we got a majority of people got it right. And this is great because knowing that that dilation stage, if there's a few, um, and follow your policy and protocols, but uh, if delivery is imminent, usually staying and delivering is the way to go because you can create a warm environment, you're safe, you've got room. Um, but knowing that dilation stage can take a while if you've done your vaginal assessment, if you're recognizing um, that the drive time to the hospital is 12 minutes and um, you're pretty certain that, you know, let's load and go. Let's just get mom to the best environment um, and recognizing that the dilation stage can take a, a bit of time for, for moms, then perfect, load and go. But if you're at that stage where um, imminent delivery, that expulsion stage, then- if you see crowning. If, yep, you're gonna yep, go you're going to hang tight. <laughs> yep, you're going to take care of business. So- so preparing for our field delivery, um, we've got maternal physiology. So moms um, uh, being able to know these few key phrases. Um, and again, like we had talked about earlier, you're going to use English, um, you know, when you're in the room or with you're with the family, you're going to mom's stomach, mom's back. Um, a lot of these terms and phrases are really good to know for charting, for calling in report um, when you're discussing it with the OBGYN. Or let's say you're calling and getting medical direction in the field and you're um, talking to a physician that has never discussed stuff in the field before and he is using the OBGYN lingo and you think, whoa, okay. You're being able to recognize those words and take a few steps back and, and know that you have it categorized in your head will definitely help. So mom's pubic symphysis the, is her front, is her tummy side, and her sacrum and her spine is the backside. Um, the pelvic outlet is that narrowest portion that's the most difficult for babe to squeeze through. Um, that amniotic fluid and baby are all contained in the uterus. Um, the cervix is that little channel that um, is sealed um, and then dilates um, during labor and opens during, so that's what they call about how uh, how far you're dilated, uh, how wide the opening of the cervix is, um, and then those amniotic membranes rupture and um, help proceed with the contractions and the delivery of the baby. And so baby physiology, those terms that we were talking about, that vertex um, or that cephalic, if, if somebody's throwing out the words vertex or cephalic uh, and that is what's engaged or that's what's coming out first, 
they just mean head down, head first, heads engaged. And you can usually just wipe your brow and go, okay, at least that's half the battle. Baby's heading out head first. And um, that's that's a, a good thing to recognize. And often moms that are at full term, they've had an ultrasound. They know, they know the lie in the presentation. You know, our OBGYN said the baby's head first or, or in this position. And so they're often aware that of, of these terminology anyhow. If you're dealing with a preterm or a more complicated delivery, um, they could be in the breech position, um, buttocks, legs, or feet. Uh, and know that little nugget in there can flex and extend like nobody's business. It's a little gumby. They can move and bend. They don't have any fused bones, so they can flex and extend and rotate, and um, you're able to assist with getting babe out if needed. And so um, know that that assistance is easy to move uh, those arms and legs. Um, and that blood flow and oxygen, remember, babe's not drowning. It is provided through that umbilical cord the whole time. And so um, just going with the natural process, not rushing anything, um, letting mom and baby be in control and and just being the best cheerleader. If that's all you have to do through a delivery is be the world's best cheerleader, strong work. Go you. That's That's it. Just creating a warm, healthy, happy environment and cheerleading through the whole thing. So normal delivery is definitely in quotes because what is normal, um, it's loosely defined as hopefully head first. Um, so usually the lay of the baby is put um, in terms then with lay of the mom. So occiput, occipital anterior means the occipit, the, the part of the head is anterior, uh, meaning mom's tummy. So back part of baby's head, is to mom's tummy. That is the most normal and natural lay for baby, the way um, they'll be delivered, um, purely because it helps keep the head flexed. And that is a key when you're delivering, is that chin down, head, the neck is flexed, and that helps with um, delivery of the head through, throughout all deliveries. And so, um, and then the following information that we talk about is, is key for all vaginal deliveries, anything that you're going to be doing in the field. And so um, labor and the contractions will allow mom for natural rotation, extension and flexion of the baby. Um, that's the way the pelvic was designed. There's kind of a pelvic gutter or a pelvic dip that helps babe rotate and turn through naturally. So this is all occurring and has been occurring since the beginning of time so don't force without it. you with the exit with exactly you were not there for, for it at all so it's don't force anything don't pull on baby let it happen those contractions are occurring for a reason and so um you know seven out of ten deliveries just be the best cheerleader ever um and being aware of what's going on and mindful if you do need to intervene so we'll discuss more of that but so after delivery of the head, uh, simply just wipe the face and mouth clear of any secretions of, of any, um, even meconium, just be aware if there is um, a staining of the, the fluid that there might be a meconium issue. But um, uh, just wiping, studies have shown that just purely wiping away the airway and the nose um, is suffices. It, it will not cause any um, damage to and the I think that's airway. probably one of the biggest changes. Oh yes, in protocol for BLS providers. Yes. ALS is we we. I mean, I learned in my EMT class as soon as you had visual suction. look of the nose, it was suction. Right. And then you had visual like of the mouth suction. Right. Where now it's I mean nope. they've been breathing ambiotic fluid in and out of their mouth for yeah their entire duration. Right. right? So 
I love this. Just want to make sure everyone doesn't miss that. Uh, wiping the face and mouth clear of secretions is preferred over a bulb syringe. Correct. If needed, like you say right here, excessive mm -hmm. secretions, concern with meconium, excess yep. blood, use the bulb syringe. We're not using Yonker tips. We're no. not using French tips. No. Like this is the bulb syringe. Yep. It's in the OB kit. That's what the hell it's for. Yep. So utilizing that. Exactly. Being able to wipe away secretions yes. is kind of our priority. Yeah. And that is key, especially for keeping them warm as well. So in the in the whole aspect of wiping away any moisture and secretions, being able to clear that, you're clearing away the airway. And I think that being too excessive with suctioning or because we had it just beaten and instilled into us, you know, suction, suction in that in that moment of, of excitable panic where we might be too aggressive with it, perhaps more damage could occur. And so just simply wiping and clearing is the new concept, is a new mindset that they're um, teaching now. And so, and that's what studies and research have shown. So that's what we're teaching you is, like is yeah, definitely being um, gentle and clearing out the airway with a, um, wiping it away. And then upon delivery, uh, baby should be stimulated, dried, uh, just rapid assessment. And then the umbilical cord and baby need to stay warm. Well, the warmest spot is going to be on mom's chest. And so if, if you can hand over, if mom's capable, if babe's capable if, of, and, and stable, um, well, the umbilical cord is attached. You set baby on mom and then keep everybody warm and dry and um, and monitoring the situation and assessing, making sure mom's not just hemorrhaging any blood or, or um, having any complications. And then being aware that perhaps 30 to 60 seconds later after babe is delivered, then you can um, clamp and cut the, the cord. So until then, there's still pulsatile um, flow and there's still um, that last little bit remnants of um, nutrients and blood that are coming from the placental and from the mom into the baby. And so um, the research has also shown that this is beneficial to baby and can assist with um, babe's viability and health over long, long well-being. And so um, clamping the cord and cutting at 60 seconds uh, after delivery. Um, and then remember, you still got part three, you uh, need to deliver that placenta. And so no pulling on that cord. And that'll, that's something that he'll deal with after you make no sure that up no speeding up. No yeah, speeding up exactly. Exactly. So let do that happen to, naturally. Do you have to wait for transport for delivery of placenta or can you load go, and go? Yep, and, go. You know? Yep, okay. exactly. And so, and usually they'll start the contractions again um, where the uterus will start contracting um, and that natural oxytocin that mom produces with baby's delivery um, to contract and, and get that uterus to tighten up again and get that um, placenta delivered. And so, and if mom is having difficulty with um, like they call it a boggy uterus, you know, or soft uterus and, and, um, and even some vaginal um, bleeding is occurring. The number one way to, cause perhaps you don't have oxytocin in your, in your drug bag and you don't have any, any way to have a uterine stimulant going on chemically. Well, mom can produce it naturally. And the number one way to trigger it is breastfeeding. So if mom starts breastfeeding that babe right away, everything's good and normal and, and she can breastfeed, then that will naturally trigger uh, the that stimulant, that hormonal stimulant. And so it all happens naturally. We're just we're just here to participate when needed. But but this was all developed, the greater scheme of things was developed really really smart and the layout of it is smart and so just let mom do what she does naturally and so um yeah so this would what quote unquote normal <laughs>
And I've got some images here that my pilot um, that I fly with quite often, Jamie, drew for me. He helped outline um, a visual. Here's that visual that I was talking about. And so um, the head is that's delivered. Impressive. And so he's a fantastic. That, yeah. So all the drawings are done by Jamie. Um, and uh, yay, Jamie. So babe comes out and the occipit, the back part of the head is towards mom's um, abdomen towards mom's tummy and so comes out and babe turns and then that rotation where that pelvic girdle um, kind of captures the two shoulders and so uh, shoulder comes out usually it's the anterior shoulder boop, out and then um, gentle traction if needed if not it all happens normally without our assistance but oftentimes um, if there's a gentle a tug on the sh on that anterior that uppermost 12 o'clock shoulder to be able to deliver that and then um, that posterior that bottom shoulder will deliver and uh, and we'll talk about in a later slide if there's any complications with shoulder delivery but this is often how babe presents and then um, but all rotation and turning of babe happens fairly naturally and without any of our assistance. And so it's just being Once there. Once shoulders are clear, like. Oh, the rest of it's gonna, it's, yeah, cause yeah, it's, it's gonna come bad. right out. And so, and then your job is to just warm and, and stimulate and dry. And and that is the, the key with um, your number one job there. And so that is the most important thing you can, can do. And so, and key, key, key to that is warmth. And, and they talk about um, if, you know, the 96.8, um, um, excuse me, 98.6 uh, Fahrenheit, that if there is a temperature um, sway greater than 1.8 degree um, lower with each drop Fahrenheit um, of, it's a drop Celsius, one Celsius, which is 1.8 Fahrenheit. But if with each drop of that, there's a 28% chance of fetal um, demise. And wow. Right. So if you don't think of anything else other than I need to make sure I'm hot, I need to make sure the environment's warm. Uh, you don't want to contribute to any reason why that babe might have any complications. And so, so for every one for every one degree Celsius correct. drop, there's a 20 percent increase of fetal demise. Twenty eight percent. Twenty eight percent. Yeah. Got yeah. It. So that's um, that's, that's a, lot. a lot. Yeah. Yep. So be mindful, especially um, if there's any. Um, complications like a premature delivery or um, difficult delivery, any complications that have reduced that viability of that fetus, um, anything that might um, have that baby not be as strong as they normally could be, definitely, definitely create a warm environment. Ugh, breach. So now we've got that potential for babe to be frank, complete, or footling. And so, um, there was that sway of um, mindset where any kind of breach delivery is considered a, a very complicated delivery and needs to be a planned C-section. And um, and so now it's, it's swaying back. It's getting a little bit more of that mindset, depending on who your OBGYN is, that um, you can vaginally deliver uh, breach. And it is a normal, it can be a normal delivery. It, it can be um, a little bit more complicated, but mom can do it absolutely by herself with, with babe and um, you just being the cheerleader. And so there is that potential that you might see the buttocks of the baby um, or a foot of the baby and, um, and you're with that imminent vaginal delivery. And then you might only need to be the cheerleader. There, there may be the need for intervention with um, rotating with flexion of joints and rotating arms and legs out. Um, but for the most part, it, it can be mostly hands-off. And so being mindful and aware of that, that um, again, women have been delivering this way for 
many, many, many moons and, um, and it can occur naturally. And Frank is going to be the most common um, delivery that you'll see breach and footling the least common um, and the least complicated because often when there's a little foot hanging out um, there's usually the risk of that umbilical cord being trapped around that foot and so that will usually need to be a c-section delivery um, and so as long as there's not um, the emergent need to push or bear down or that umbilical cord is being clamped off or um, blood flow is restricted, then that one just be aware that that more than likely will be a C-section and need to be um, imminent, like getting to the hospital. So, but if mom's got a frank little, little nugget in there and she's bearing down and pushing, then you've got an imminent delivery that could absolutely happen. Um, with little to no complications, especially because you're going to know exactly what you need to do and when you need to help. And so um, preterm babies are more likely to be in a breech position because this is a normal presentation for them. They haven't um, developed big enough yet where they then start to rotate and descend into the pelvic girdle head first and engage in that pelvic girdle. Um, and so if you're delivering preterm, um, breach is not an uncommon thing. And so it's it's something to be mindful of if mom says that she's fairly early on, 34 weeks in pregnancy kind of thing, and that um, they might present breach for you. You've got the upside of it being potentially smaller and so um, less um, size and girth to go through the pelvic uh, girdle, but you're still going to be managing those little buttocks first. And so um, Again, babe will rotate and progress into position. And um, if you are needing to assist with uh, rotating or or adjusting the babe, you are not going to twist extremities. You are not going to twist tummy. You are going to aim for a bony prominence like that pelvic girdle of the baby and rotating on a bony prominence. No pulling, tugging on extremities or tummy because you will do damage, internal damage, internal organ damage. And so... Um, just be very mindful of that, that you are going to be using that pelvic girdle of the baby to rotate. So. so looking at complications, is there anything that you know of with, with teen pregnancies? Is there specific emergencies associated with that? Um, anything you know specifically? You know, and not necessarily related to teen pregnancy. That is a good question because that's something that we do come across, you know, frequently. And, and um, those pregnancies that might not have um, any um, prenatal care, um, or there's been a, um, kind of a neglect or a, um, you, you don't want to, um, recognize that you're pregnant, um, things along those lines. And so there, there absolutely could be those complications going on. Um, and with, um, age-related youth deliveries, it more often you see um, preterm babies. And so we may, there could be an absolute association okay. with with more breech deliveries in our younger. Well, um, anytime you, you have lack of prenatal care, yes. the increase of complications yes. goes up, right? Yes. So you're just, any anybody could be, I mean, could be anybody at any age that says, Correct. I've had no prenatal care. Right. That in itself is yes. just, red flag goes up. Yep. This is going to be a complicated Yes. delivery you might as well just bank on that right and it's vastly different when you present to a house where you show up and you can tell mom and dad have had 
prenatal care and they're in their phase where they go every week and they and they tell you baby is this right. i have this and i've been taking this medication and they have it lined up it's basically written out in document form for you versus you show up to that call at that house and um you look at your patient's stomach your mom's your you know, she, and she's like, I'm not pregnant. And you're like, mm. Mm, you are, you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The fact that you, that you have a presenting part coming out is, <laughs> is a definite sign. I've learned that one. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it changes things dramatically. So just assume no prenatal care going to be more, could be more complicated. Absolutely. Cause it's veterinary medicine at that point. You don't, you don't know what's going on. So again, baby's engaged in the birth canal, except for it's not going to be the head. It's going to be those little buttocks coming out. And so baby will rotate. Um, and uh, with the breech presentation, um, for the most part, we love it when babe's back, when um, it's uh, in a sacral anterior position, so back up position. And so um, you see little buttocks and you see its spine um, coming out. And that is the presentation we love to see. Uh, and that will also manipulate and assist with rotation for our, our babe's presentation. And so that is the best way to ensure uh, basically getting to the delivery of the head and making sure that flexion happens with that head. And so, and we'll show images of that coming down the line. But um, so Babes often deliver their legs spontaneously. Those little buttocks come out. And so you'll see um, that each leg will just kind of slide right out. And that is uh, perfect. But if not, uh, knowing the phrases, especially if you get an OBGYN um, for medical assistance online and he's on speakerphone and he tells you to flex the knee and abduct uh, that leg and you think, what? <laughs> and so knowing that you take the knee and you bend at the knee, flex it. So you bend it back, it's being flexed back, and then you abduct, which means take away. So adduct is to the body, abduct is away from the body. So you're gonna flex the knee, and then you're just gonna bend it away from the body. Bloop, the leg pops out. And you can do that on each side if need be, and get those legs delivered. And then once the legs are delivered, um, you just make sure that that back is still to the ceiling and that babe can, um, and then hands off then let, let mom do her thing and, uh, and keep pushing with contractions and, and then babe will head out and then it'll just be up to the arms. Very common that arms will deliver on their own because they'll start to rotate a little bit, um, to like the anterior shoulder again, the top shoulder will uh, rotate up to the 12 o'clock position and then arms can come out, um, but in the bottom line is when I think about it, and if I were stuck in a really tight little tube, how do you want your arms rotated out? If you had to think about that, would you want somebody to pull and tug away or rotate gently across the front of your chest and pull down? So if you think about it that way, you're going to flex the arm in and rotate and pull gently down. Um, and so it's just sliding across the chest guided downward out, and then you can rotate the other arm to the, the other shoulder to the 12 o'clock position, and then copy that again, flexing in across the chest and pulling that arm down. And so you deliver the arms if assistance is needed. Again, it can often happen without assistance, but sometimes gentle rotation and, and um, traction down towards across the chest. So um, yeah, and then return baby to back up and then let baby's head 
deliver. And then we'll talk, the next slide will be the delivery of the head. Perfect. So me and my little mannequin assistants here. No drawing. I'm a little disappointed. <laughs> I don't. I was like, I need a really good visual of how to do this. And I don't want to put Jamie through that. And so, so the key with the head is going to be flexion of the chin. So think about the, that flexion again. Flexion, chin down. Chin has to be down. So uh, we need it to be able to, the back of the head to slide under that pubic symphysis and out. And, um, and so assistance may be required with being able to push with uh, on the back of that head and pushing down and creating that flexion, um, pulling cheeks down and then pushing back on that exhibit, um, creating the flexion. And so the fingers are inserted into that vaginal opening with just gentle pushing down on the back of the head and ensuring that that head stays flexed while you rotate baby up. Um, there are hands-off ways and there's many different ways to um, to deliver the head. And some people without even finger assist will simply take baby's feet and rotate baby's feet up towards the ceiling and that head will pop out um, naturally without any flexion. It just um, is depending on your level of comfort. I know my level of comfort is being in control. <laughs> and so being able to put the the fingers on babe's head and then sandwiching the baby between my arms and then rotating babe up uh, makes me feel like I am maintaining control of that baby and uh, and being able to deliver the head. And so, and that'll be the last difficult part of, of that breech delivery is getting that head out of there. But hopefully the visuals make it a little easier to, to get a tell on how to keep that chin flexed down as low as we can go. So... That's it. I hate to cut you off, but this was just a sample of one of our live sessions from one of our amazing educators. If you'd like to join our monthly sessions for free, you can follow us on Facebook by searching emsconnect.org and register for our next session. During, we give away an Amazon $50 gift card and you're able to interact with our speakers in real time. If you'd like to get CE credit for attending these live lectures, then you need to become a member over at www.emsconnect.org. Our membership is only $7.50 per month, and you get access to our live sessions as well as our archive that houses over 140 hours of content by our amazing speakers. Also, you can purchase our NREMT 100% online EMT, advanced EMT, and paramedic refresher courses again at www.emsconnect.org. Sign up today and get educated. Hey, thanks for checking out another episode of EMS Connect on Shift. Please subscribe, review, and rate our podcast on your favorite platforms. Those ratings really help our podcast grow and reach new listeners. Also, make sure to like and follow our social media sites by searching EMS Connect on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for getting educated with EMS Connect.